We're doomed, we're saved. The Biorevolution Podcast. Your host, Luise von Stecho and Andreas Horchler. We are doomed, we are saved, episode 16. Today, synthetic biology or man-made life. Your hosts, as always, Luise von Stecho and Andreas Horchler. Welcome you all. Designing, redesigning life, a scary vision in part at least, but one that carries huge potential, benefit for humanity. Easy, as always, you brought quotes, and I guess we're meeting a very famous scientist slash entrepreneur to kick off. Yeah, absolutely. So my quotes today are both from Craig Wenter, who was one of the main guys of the Human Genome Project. So there was this kind of race to complete the Human Genome Project. And he was on the non-academic side, so on the commercial side of the picture. And he's one of the biggest entrepreneurs when it comes to the field of DNA technologies and maybe one could call him the modern father of synthetic biology. So he said two very interesting things about synthetic biology. So one is life is a DNA software system. That's a cool one. Yeah, really like that. <laughs> I also really like the other one. The day is not far off when we will be able to send robotically controlled genome sequencing units in a probe to other planets to read the DNA sequence of an alien microbe life that may be there. So I... I find the idea of life on other planets fascinating, not that I'm sure that I believe in it, but at least I think having synthetic biology as a tool to bring us there would be really, really quite, quite fascinating. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What kind of guy is he, by the way? I mean, you said that, that he comes from the commercial side of exploring the human genome, of course, very famous in the scientific community. But do we know anything about him? Yeah, I think I know some things. I hope I'm not saying anything wrong. I think he's actually a doctor, medical doctor, and he's, I think, also an army vet. He does have the mindset of the scientist, but he really likes to push boundaries and he sees the commercial aspects of it. And I think while others were still really into like reading the human genome in full depth, he moved very quickly into deciphering genomes of viruses and bacteria because he saw the potential to actually recreate artificial microbes or to redesign microbes in such a way. And I think that he also made quotes about, I didn't find them actually when I was researching, but I read somewhere that he was also claiming that the first person who would become a, I don't know, multi-hyper-billionaire would be the one who actually can create artificial microbes in a way, for example, that they would produce fuels or would produce other biomaterials. Because if you have that at your disposal, you can just create anything. I mean, Quite convincing. you could replace the oil industry. So. Right, right, absolutely. So synthetic biology, man-made life or designing new life, or if I may, playing God, in a way, might say that. We're kind of at the rapidly developing crossroads of DNA synthesis, gene sequencing. We talked about that, of course, AI and other components all coming together. How do we get there? What is the 
actual framework for synthetic biology. I just want to add like one fun fact to the to the play so. to the playing god thing. So when actually the first artificial genome or the first artificial microbe was released in this 2010 science paper from Craig Venter, actually the reaction of the Vatican was quite positive in terms of because wow. there was this question, I mean that really kicked off a big ethical debate around playing god, but they said it's just redesigning a little bit and not playing God. So I found that actually fascinating that even that they would put a statement out towards this kind of research. So what do we need as a framework? I think, I mean, we need mainly three components. One is reading the code of life. So basically the language of synthetic biology is DNA and its sequences or other biomolecules, RNA and proteins that derive from the DNA sequence. So we need to understand how that is designed in order to then know how to tinker with it. The second step that we need is to write this DNA or the subsequent molecules. So we need to actually be able to produce them in a stable and sufficient fashion. So of course, we can clone genes into artificial um, DNA elements called plasmids, but we now have also more sophisticated technologies of actually writing DNA. And the last thing that we actually need, and I think that's the one where we lag behind a little bit, is to understand what we are reading and writing. Right. Because I mean, Knowing the sequence of a gene and being able to write the sequence of a gene doesn't actually mean that you understand what the gene codes for and how you could put that into context, pitch it or uh, stitch it together in order to make meaningful life out of it. That said, one thing that might actually be helping us, and that's part of one of the parallel revolutions that's happening, are large language models that can not understand We talked about it in one of our previous episodes. We will talk about them, I think, many times many again. Many times in the future, yes, I guess But, so. But um, our, I mean, large language models can create a semblance of human understanding, and they don't only understand human language, they can also understand DNA or protein sequences, and potentially they could actually help us make sense of all this uncharted territory that we have in our genomes. So... I guess we have to hint at the fact, because anybody who is not in the scientific community might think, well, this is something that happens in 30, 40, 50 years or so, but it did already happen. So synthetic biology is something that is in the playing field right now, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that's really taking off also at the moment. So what, I mean, the this first, I think, viral or artificial virus, I think was 2006. That's all coming from, from Venter's company. And the second one was this artificial bacterium, mycoplasma bacterium, that was just recreated. So it's the same bacterium as it would occur naturally, but it's completely redesigned by a human and recreated. So genome written on a computer, not by evolution. But then they also, in I think 2016, released the first minimal bacterium. So they took out all the genes from this bacterium where they said that might not be needed. So that's really a human created organism. So we can, of course, go much further than that. I mean, we know, for example, that using large language models, we could create proteins that don't occur in nature. We're still, I think, at the stage where it's much easier to recreate or to make small additions than to completely create new things, basically because we lack the understanding of how genes play together in order to create something. But in principle, if we had the understanding and we might gain that 
with AI, maybe even taking out the human middleman, maybe the human will not understand, but maybe the AI will understand and then create the artificial microbes. I mean, that is something basically that is happening right now. Going further than that, many steps ahead, of course, we could also edit organisms that are much more complex than bacteria. That is currently not happening to the degree that it's a completely artificial organism. Of course, we now, especially with CRISPR-Cas, uh, but also other genome editing technologies, we can do a lot more also with human genome editing, for example, in uh, gene therapies and cell therapies. And we also have the potential, of course, for embryonic gene editing, even though that is banned in almost every country. Let's go practical with uh, synthetic biology. Where will we meet synthetic biology applications in the future and what will be the potential benefits many 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 <laughs> so i think uh, yeah when preparing this episode i thought oh we can do many episodes on all this uh, subtopics again because let's some make of this three hours yeah. or something <laughs> yes. no i think that would not be appreciated by our listeners but Maybe. let's keep it short and save some for further discussions so we have of course the opportunity so artificial microbes bacteria or also other small organisms for example yeast but also for example algae have the potential to produce all kinds of materials that can be for the medical field of course drugs and vaccines for example um, already there was a synthetic creation of um, artemisinin that's a malaria drug that's created in in microbes but it goes much further than that so not only drugs and vaccines but also all other kinds of materials so one could think about biofuels that currently take a lot of energy to produce and a lot of large fields for the crops that need to grow. If you would do that, for example, in aquatic microorganisms, you could actually cut out all this land waste and uh, be much more efficient there. Also, other materials could be created. So, for example, NASA is experimenting with self-designing or with biologically designed space suits that could actually be created while, <laughs> while you're in space. So, I mean, there is really massive potential for all kinds of different materials that you could create with these microbes. Of course, also food sources beyond meat kind of uh, solutions could be created. So this is really... I guess biological solar cells as well, Absolutely, right? yeah. Which is in the making. Absolutely, yes. And then we have, of course, the potential for editing for human health. So, for example, gene therapies to repair uh, genetic defects, to counteract cancer, on the long run to counteract aging, for example, by having tissue replenishing artificially designed cells. So this whole longevity field might actually be fueled by it. Again, also here, thinking about space, that's a space-heavy episode. But uh, <laughs> um, so, I mean, one of the key challenges when going for this outer or longer distance space missions, Mars and beyond, is that muscles and bones deteriorate too much. So having replenishing stem cells that could be artificially grown on your space station that you might inject to actually counteract this bone reabsorption or maybe the muscle weakness that will result could be really interesting applications. Keep the guys healthy. Exactly, right. keep them going. Mm -hmm. And then beyond um, the medical field, of course, I mean, the question of embryonic editing could come up. You could even design artificial embryos. I mean, this is still a little bit futuristic. I mean, the mycobacterium, mycoplasma bacterium that was designed, I mean, that's a far, far, far distance from 
a human genome, but the technology is the same. So you could also do that potentially with a human cell. It's not something that's very near term, but you can already do small edits. And that, I mean, was uh, was the one for which this uh, Chinese doctor was sent to prison, right? Uh, because he uh, did this small CRISPR edit exactly. on the so-called CRISPR twins. So that is another possibility. And one other field that I find very, very interesting is actually to use DNA as a storage medium. So DNA is not only applicable for using it as a code of life, but you could potentially also just use this code to encode anything else. So the group around George Church, they already actually encoded a whole book in DNA. And um, they also made a postulation of how, how heavy or how much DNA would hold all the information that is currently available in digital form. So if you would Yeah, I think take all the data that's available digitally from, from all servers, you could actually store that in around 81 kilograms of DNA. That is still a little bit futuristic. That's not currently happening because the DNA synthesis and writing strategies are not good enough. So we are currently, it's not fast enough and we don't get long enough DNA Uh, segments for that. But of course, the code of the DNA is a little bit more versatile than the one that we have with uh, digital computing. I mean, then you have two variables, ones and zeros, and for DNA, you have four. You could even expand that by including artificial nucleotides or including the ones that only occur in RNA. So the combinatorial space just grows. Expands exactly. by a lot. Yeah, yeah. And that also increases the computational power that you could actually do with that. So that's yet another field, DNA computing, that was actually foreseen by Richard Feynman, who was also one, one of the guys involved in the Manhattan Project, actually. And he gave this very famous lecture, There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. And he actually envisaged in 1959 already DNA computing system that would assemble atom by atom and then based on that compute. And this is another field of research that's being pursued to just really see if you can actually do computations with DNA. Doors wide open, no doubt about that. The rules of the game, you mentioned that we've known for a while now about the human genome, but we're still in the process of making sense of it in a way. We know a lot about evolution, obviously, the behavior of cells, of reproduction, for instance. The question is, to me, do we, with all the achievements of science, understand life in order to make to make life that's yet unseen. So to create something entirely new. You mentioned all the things we might pretty soon be able to do to achieve technically. But then there's the other side of making sense of it, right? Yeah, I think I would answer that with a very clear no. So we don't. We might think we understand bacterium enough. But We don't understand life per se. And the problem is that, and I think that's one of the key challenges, is that it's kind of like a battle of wills, maybe when it comes to synthetic biology, because it's it's human design against the principles of biology. Because even though we might design something and we put it out there, then it will start to follow the rules of evolution, right? Because there we 
basically we have to let it free. Yeah. yeah. And then genes that might not be beneficial for the survival of an organism could just be outcompeted. And there might even be a risk for unintended consequences because we have a very hard time, of course, predicting what will happen if we start designing organisms, for example, that self-replicate and that have a certain purpose. We don't know if we can actually stop them from self-replicating. We already see that, right, with uh, many diseases, even viral diseases, which are extremely simple. It should per se not be so difficult to model what they will do, but since they interact with other parts of the ecosystem, like humans or maybe other hosts, yeah, we have a very hard time. I mean, for the for the coronavirus, I mean, it was very difficult, right, to predict how it would behave and where it would come up and when it would go down, how these waves, how these patterns might occur. And I think that's something that we see again and again and again if we interfere with ecosystems, that we lack the predictive power to really interfere with this complexity. And I think for synthetic biology, we have even a two-pronged complexity because we have on the one hand, the artificially created organism. On the other hand, we have the interaction of this organism with the complex ecosystem. So basically we have a very hard time predicting what it will do. Mm -hmm. So far, I mean, the, those little bacteria that the Vanta group designed, I think they're still replicating, but they didn't do any harm to and anyone. Stay in the lab. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, staying in the lab, that's a question always, I right? Know. I mean, yeah, you need to make sure that things stay in the lab. And yeah, I mean, even for COVID, right? I mean, they couldn't rule out that it wasn't not a lab accident, even though it was not considered super likely. But there are always stories of lab accidents. These yeah. just happen because the human factor is another layer of complexity. Humans true, make mistakes. True. Also, I guess that, I mean, when it comes to COVID, it's been a rapid evolution of the virus, of course. But when we talk about the evolution of those artificially created new entities, let me call it that, mm -hmm. we have to consider evolution in a sense of a million years or so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we can't, can we? No, we cannot. And this is really also the question of this intelligent design, because this is for the first time really intelligent design that's happening. Yeah. And that's, again, brings us back to playing God. But of course, I mean, we can only design and we cannot foretell the future of these organisms because we don't know what evolution will do to them. Yeah, yeah. So we'll get back in a minute to ethical and societal questions, of course, but let's for now have a little closer look at the scientific toolbox. So the underlying technologies of synthetic biology, reading, writing, understanding of DNA, which components come together? Mainly it's the sequencing of DNA that plays a big role. So just Reading, reading gene sequences, um, for example, by next generation sequencing. The older version was the Sanger sequencing. There are other long repeat sequencing technologies. So basically, you read just pieces of the DNA. You don't read the whole strand as such, which is also extremely long. I think it's like until the moon or something, if it's unrolled completely. <laughs> you chop up the DNA and then you read it and you put it back together based on a database approach. So you have all the genes of all the organisms in a database and then you match it back together. There's also approaches where you just read letter by letter by letter, but that just takes ages and it's very expensive. And by these quicker, more chopped up approaches, it's 
actually quite cheap and quite fast to read genomes nowadays. That's why we also get this personal genomics that we talked about in the last episode, yeah. because it now really is possible to quite quickly read um, DNA. And then the writing of DNA, we used to rely on cloning technologies that were actually based on um, plasmids. So these are free DNA elements that are common in um, bacteria, and they can be swapped between bacteria. That's called horizontal gene transfer. It's actually one of the things that, for example, leads to antibiotic resistance or in general. So bacteria like to swap their genes around. Mm -hmm. But we can also use that by just feeding them genes that they can then express. And that, for example, is for production of uh, biomaterials such as vaccines or drugs is very commonly used, that you just force the bacterium to express this gene and then it can just lead that or can just produce whatever you want it to produce. But then with the newer genome editing technology, so CRISPR, we also have um, the potential to actually insert genes very, very specifically. So in the original gene, we can make even like single nucleotide changes. We can also make exchange bigger stretches or cut it out, do all kinds of things. So that is much, much more precise than the other technology. And then we might also have the potential to just yeah, really design genomes from scratch and print them and then either piece them together by cloning technologies, or really, if it's a very short one, just produce them and put them in a cell and express them there. We promise we're not going to go three hours, but we can't go without a little closer look into the history book, because, I mean, you mentioned the guy from the Manhattan Project who predicted the biological computer, if I may put it like yeah. that, very abbreviated, of course. But where does it come from? How how recent is the development really? I mean, the, the real takeoff of the development is very recent. So only, I would say, after the decoding of the human genome and the human genome project, so in the early 2000s, it really took off in the sense, I think, of what we might understand modern under modern synthetic biology. That said, it's a term that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, yeah. like artificial intelligence. It can be anything from a simple... So basically anything that you do to DNA, to life, that is not original, that has some lab component, might also be considered uh, synthetic biology. So that a term was actually already coined in 1912 by a scientist named Stéphane Leduc, and he actually referred to it by using non-biological processes to mimic biological systems. So basically things like chemical reactions or osmotic processes, so more physics and chemistry than biology. So for him, that meant synthetic biology. But what we now understand under it is the redesign or new design of living things using the technologies of the biotechnology toolbox. And that, I mean, the, the groundwork for that was laid when the first recombinant DNA cloning projects were happening in the early 1970s. So there's this famous Ancilima conference where uh, mm -hmm. the scientists got together and discussed about genetic engineering, about uh, creating new 
living entities by exchanging genetic elements by these classical cloning technologies. And I mean, this builds the basis for all of it and already has created a lot of companies also that produce biologic drugs, for example, Humira, one of the biggest selling drugs, or all these antibody drugs that are now actually very important for human health. I mean, they come out of this original technologies. And then on top, we get, of course, this milestone of the Human Genome Project and these milestones of the Venter Group and many other groups, of course, as well. He's the flashy person uh, with the flashy uh, publications that produce this artificially created microbes. And then I think another milestone then is the discovery of CRISPR-Cas system because it just leaves us with the more fine, fine-tuned potential to actually interfere with DNA. For the first time you get the scissors to Ex cut it up. I mean, if you read articles about it, there is often the comparison to Moore's law. So the speeding of digital technology, it's compared to that because at the moment the DNA reading and probably also writing technologies are becoming so much faster and easier to use that, of course, that really takes on. And when we really look at the economics of it, I mean, it has a predicted massive growth rate. I mean, this is, of course, a prediction, but currently we're at like, I think, a market size of 13 billion, but it's supposed to be within the next around 10 years or so to grow to 120 billion. So that's actually for like such a market, a massive growth rate. So yeah, let's see how that will play out predictions, but I think it's very interesting. Yeah, and it might be a part, if we look at materials alone and the computing ideas alone, it might solve or be part of the solving of the main problems of humanity right now. So no wonder that the predictions are so high in the economic field here. Talk about the medical applications of synthetic biology. You mentioned a few, but we focused a little bit on space and materials. And of course, this is very funky, but the medical approach is curing diseases is something we time and time again talk about in this podcast, obviously because it is so closely associated to the biorevolution, obviously. And synthetic biology might play a big, big role here, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, we already touched upon it, right? So, I mean, we have the potential to interfere. And that, I, I mean, this is maybe like not the classical synthetic biology, but more just gene editing. But we could call that synthetic biology of just altering genetic diseases, counteracting them before they even manifest. So, for example, one could do gene editing, gene therapies in very young children, one could considerably also do that in the embryonic stage, uh, if that would be permissible. And then, of course, we have the chances for adult diseases, if we would understand the genes well enough to counteract them, that is still a relatively tricky field, I would say. I mean, for, for many cancers that have no clear driver, for metabolic diseases such as diabetes, for heart risk of heart disease or uh, liver diseases. I mean, there are many, many, many studies done and there are certain risk factors, but there are also many people. I mean, it's just combinatorial. So we really need a better understanding before we can do any genetic editing to help that. But that said, I mean, what can, of course, also be done are, um, for example, stem cell therapies. I mean, that's a big field for the longevity um, uh, industry or the longevity ideas that you have stem cells that might replenish tissues. Mm -hmm. Of course, 
I mean, we age because our cells age. So if we would have new cells somehow, right? <laughs> that could be could be very beneficial. That's a very oversimplified version of the story. But of course, you could, for example, imagine to artificially rejuvenate cells or keep cells at a young age and then keep them manipulate them artificially not to, to age, yeah. mm -hmm. not to age and to then replenish different tissues or um, for example even just the hematopoietic system to keep the immune system running and i think in general also immune um, related applications so for cancer there are these immunotherapies um, that are quite promising also for other hematological indications so uh, sickle cell anemia but also other like hemophilia i mean you would just have cells of the blood system that you replace with healthier ones. And you could conceivably do that for many cancers, having immune cells that attack the cancer, but also for other immune diseases where you have immune defect and people are very prone to get infections or even have that as a vaccination approach, for example. So just have immune cells that are trained outside the body and designed because immune responses are a very, very complicated thing. And if That, for example, with the aid of AI, could be designed outside the body and just put into the patient to get the immune system to do what it's supposed to do. That could, of course, be a really interesting and also promising strategy. That is all relatively futuristic stuff. We already talked about green biotech in the sense of synthetic biology and about the field of energy environment. How likely is it and how big might the, I mean, this is far-fetched, but how big might the contribution at the end of the day be of synthetic biology in solving those major problems like climate change? Yeah. And feeding the world yeah. of 10 billion. Yeah. I think this really depends how well it will work to design microbes that do what you want them to do in a way that doesn't get too expensive because currently it's still quite expensive to do these. I mean, also, for example, biofuel production via yeast is quite expensive. And the so, question is if we want biofuels in a sense because they have a carbon footprint still. Yeah, they do. They do, of course. I mean, yes, I think it's not a perfect solution, but probably better than what we currently are, than the fossil fuels. And this is it's very hard to predict because it could be that it's really just the tipping point and we will soon have these artificially created microbes that can actually produce very cheaply the things that we want them to produce but it can also be that it just won't work and i think we're not at a stage where we can really predict it well i mean i think it will work but i i'm not sure if we can scale it yeah And yeah. that's, that's the challenge. I mean, that's an important question. Yeah. If we can't scale it, then it doesn't make sense exactly. at all. Or it's not going to be a main yeah. contributor to yeah. solving problems. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a challenge. I mean, one thing that we also, I mean, didn't touch upon, but when we talk about the green biotech, it could, of course, also be used uh, synthetic biology to, I mean, there is a lot of genetically modified crop plants already and that could of course even take that a step further by recreating genomes even potentially reinserting genetic uh, diversity into crop plants that's currently like super mono monocultured like corn or soy in the US that are very have very limited variability which of course is very unhealthy for these kind of plants or for any any entity Variability is always good in a genome because of evolution. That could actually be another really interesting application. And of course, also pest 
counteraction. So making either the plants resistant to be eaten by fruit flies, locusts or other animals, or of course also changing the genomes of those pest species themselves, for example, by gene drives. So enforcing them to express genes that might kill them off or might make them infertile or um, something else. So that is also one of the big areas, of course, where these technologies might make a, a huge impact, of course. In one episode, we talked about the eradication of malaria mm -hmm. by doing just that. And we don't know the outcome if we manipulate those organisms in a fashion that would, in, in certain countries, in sub-Sahara, for instance, really have an impact. But we don't do it because we don't know the outcome. That leads me to, we always conclude we are doomed, we are saved with the concerns, with the dooming part. What are the ethical concerns? What are the potential risks of the technology at hand. We discussed a few already. And for me, always the question is, who is going to regulate that? I mean, the question is easier to answer when we talk about Europe, uh, certainly, than if we talk about the US or if we talk about places like China, you know, but altogether to make sense there, in my opinion, has to be some regulation, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, when it comes to regulation, it really depends a little bit on the application, I think. So, I mean, there is the question of technologies that can be used for normal research and that might have the potential to be, for example, weaponized, this dual-use technologies. CRISPR, I think, is counted amongst them. And I think the uh, same applies for some synthetic biology applications. So people do wonder, are we using that? I mean, basically, the technology... It's not the technology, but it's the intent of the person who uses the technology. Do, do you want to cure cancer or stop climate change, or do you want to create a bioweapon? Right. Both might be possible. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, is one of the key concerns, especially with the artificially designed microbes, that you might recreate extinct diseases, uh, smallpox and similar, that you might further weaponized diseases. There was a big scare of, I think, a Dutch scientist um, and another one who published a super virulent bird flu genome for research purposes. But of course, so I think the paper also was held back and then released in a different form in yeah. the end. So these are, of course, I mean, bad actors have, of course, with the technologies at hand that are now, as we discussed, relatively cheap and easy to handle. So you do not need, I mean, it might help if you have worked in a lab before, but it's not that you need like tens of years of study in order to get there. You yeah. can just order it and do it like this biohacker situation. So that's, that's one of the things that it's, it might be quite easy. And with the dual revolution of artificial intelligence, but also of just this massive information flow, it might just be easier to get your hands on potentially harmful genomes. Yeah, meaning at the same time, I guess, if I hear you right, there's no real effective controlling because any lab, any not even highly sophisticated person is able to create something that might do damage. Well, I mean, so there are some bans. I mean, there are, of course, bans on anything that can be weaponized and there's monitoring of genetic sequences. So if you order your CRISPR sequence primers and 
there for the smallpox genome, then probably there will be an alert going off somewhere. So there is monitoring with the companies who provide these materials. Mm. So that, I think, is not so easy. That said, I think probably, like, you also don't get the materials to build a bomb just like that, but you might have to take two or three corners. I think probably similar things will be possible for weaponizing um, biomaterials. Still, I mean, the problem, and that's why bioweapons are not used so often, is that they are very difficult to handle. So, I mean, you have an extremely high likelihood of infecting yourself rather than anyone else. So there it's really, and that of course might also be something that could be solved using synthetic biology that you, for example, have something that is only released with a certain trigger or something. But that I think is not the work of a garage biohacker. I think that becomes a bit more complicated. But of course, they are not only biohackers, they are also just bad actors, right? I mean, they're Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we discussed the ethical field, the concerns, the potential harm that could be done, but we also talked in length about the benefits that might be possible in the not so far future. Izzy, what would be, if you had a free choice being in a, in a team of scientists, the field of synthetic biology that you would say, okay, count me in, I'm, I'm going, I'm doing it? Yeah, I'm really fascinated by alternate codes of life. So this idea that, I mean, all of life that has ever existed on planet Earth has followed probably, as far as we understand that, the same genetic code for the last billions of years. So this code of nucleotides that codes for amino acids and proteins, that's just the same. It's the same in all lowly and highly organisms. But it's not the only way that this code might work. And it might also be that other species that might exist on other planets, who knows if they might exist, we're coming back to space. But I think the concept of altering the codes of DNA, so to use alternative coding and to potentially also use AI to come up with new codes that might create completely new forms of life that we cannot even imagine, that I would find extremely fascinating and I would also be up for sending some sending some probes into space into or space, yes. sending sending and see our what happens. <laughs> yeah the other alternative was also what I also really like is the so in the Voyager missions they send pictures of all life on Earth on hard drives but we could also just send our DNA to space right and yeah, see if of um, sure. there's actually okay I will follow uh, close with something slightly absurd there is a, a cult. <laughs> the realism it's called and they believe that humanity is constantly creating itself recreating itself by intelligent design somewhere in space mm-hmm. but well i i completely don't believe in that but i think just sending our dna out there and thinking maybe it might be picked up somewhere Good stuff for Hollywood, yeah. no question. I think, and that's what I find fascinating about this whole topic. I mean, that's really, really close to, I don't know, Michael Crichton novel. There is yeah. a lot of I guess in part, cool stuff. I, I guess in part we can at this point agree to disagree. Maybe this is a generational thing or so. Because I I understand it's it's very fascinating, but I see it as quite diabolic as well. Yeah, yeah, I see that as well. But, but you're the scientist. I get it. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, in that, I think in that, that picture, I mean, I, I see all the harm that, I mean, can be done with it. And I think that's, that's a general question, right, of all these novel technologies. But I also find it extremely fascinating, the possibilities that it offers. That said, I mean, having regulations that keep it within ethical boundaries and prevent unethical experiments, like, for example, those CRISPR babies or any kind of dangerous research on, on viral or bacterial genomes. That would be great. That said, and what we discussed now many times, we have this risk of unintended consequences. So maybe even with the best intentions, something bad might come out so that we cannot cannot know. At least fingers crossed for politicians all over the world to come up with a, with a fair and good regulation that grants the benefits and hinders the bad actors. Absolutely. Thank you, Easy. Thank you. This was episode number 16 of We Are Doomed, We Are Saved, Synthetic Biology, Man-Made Life. If you like the show, please subscribe to it at the streaming service of your choice or visit us at sciencetales.com. That's science-tales.com for feedback, further information and inspiration. Thanks for listening.